in advance, and I don't necessarily, um, I didn't really have a, a title, so I used the title that I came up with from another talk, um, but I thought it was pertinent, um, and I'll read what the description, or what I say I'm up to today. So, being mindful, a joyful journey of self-discovery, a vision of the possibility we have of being mindful on a journey of self-discovery that allows for experiencing enthusiasm, love, peace, and happiness, as well as other positive emotions. So that pretty much is, is my experience. I should probably turn on the... I, I, I tape everything because I'm always um, listening to myself, and when I listen to myself, I get inspired. <laughs> <laughs> And people say, well, you know, that's kind of weird, dude. Uh, how do you get inspired listening to yourself? Because when I'm talking, I don't have time to listen. And so when I listen to it, and then what I also have discovered is that I say some things that are pretty cool and some things that, you know, so I, I, I guess because when I worked in a corporate environment, uh, this is what we would call um, quality control. <laughs> you know, you always want to see what works, what doesn't work, and... and it's interesting because even in, you know, talking about performance or talking about what works and what doesn't work, that there is this component of, of self-evaluation, of reflecting before, during, and after, and that this process is all about learning and continuing to learn. So another way of saying seeking wisdom is learning, you know, from, from moment to moment about our experience, about things. And so... I thought it would be interesting to talk about that because on my personal journey, that's how it was for me. Um, I think next month, I don't think, I know, uh, July 30th will be 31 years of sobriety for me. And in those 31 years, I've averaged over a book a week. And not to mention that I got into this practice because I had chronic pain once I became clean and sober and I could experience the pain. And so I was probably, uh, you know, pain regulation through drugs and alcohol on some level, not just the emotional pain, but actually physical pain. And so I got, I got introduced to this process, and to me it wasn't just a refuge, it was a revelation of waking up and then realizing that I had this need to be intellectually, stim intellectually stimulated, or at least that's what I thought. And then now I reflect on it, and I realize that I was seeking wisdom. And so a lot of times I tell people um, the game I'm playing right now is pursuing excellence and wisdom with grace and ease. And those two last words are very important because when I first came around here, it wasn't so graceful and it wasn't so easy. Even though it was joyful, it wasn't so easy. Uh, I think I remember when I went back to graduate school and I was on Brattle Street, I was went to Cambridge College and got my master's in counseling psychology and I remember being in the coffee shop and because what happened was I was reading all these books and my friend my friend John uh, he threw this application at me he said here dude you're doing all this study and you might as well get a degree for it because I was reading all these books so I ended up going to Cambridge College and then something happened on the way to the forum or on the way um, here there was a period of time there where I lost that joy, and I don't know how many years it was, but it was, a, it was a significant amount of time. I don't know if it was a decade or more. And then one day I was reflecting, and I re reflected on what I felt like 
being in that coffee shop with, with friends that were matriculating in, gra in graduate school. And I got back in touch with that feeling of, of an excitement and enthusiasm. And I do, a lot of re I do a lot of research, a lot of studying, and I've been studying right effort, which is um, one of the um, mental practices we practice here, one of the spiritual practices, but it's also, um, it, it's, it's also part of um, the factors for, for enlightenment, and it's part of the Noble Eightfold Path as well. And I started studying it, and I've been studying this stuff for a while. And I lived here for six years, so I had access to all the libraries and the teachers and everything. And all of a sudden, I'm reading about right effort, and the word enthusiasm is there. I said, where did, where did that come from? It's been there the whole time. But it, it was through my study and continuing to, to reflect on it and to, um, and to you know, continue to read and continue to study. I don't know how, how else to say it. Um, that it started, I started seeing other things and started realizing that I was making this practice way too complicated. Um, I, I had a lot of what we call wrong effort was meant I, was, I had a lot of greed. I wanted to be enlightened yesterday. And so then when I realized it, it's really about just being still and knowing and just chilling, as they, as they say, uh, not, not trying to get too intense about about it, but being a type A personality without hostility, that's very important, uh, that, you know, I don't do anything easy. You know, it's like, uh, what's, what's her name, uh, uh, Proud Mary, uh, um, that song, Rolling on the River, you know, and Tina Turner says they don't do anything soft. They just, you know, she just rolls. That's the way she rolls, and you, she could be describing me. But anyway, so I think what I want to talk about is, is this idea of learning and learning for learning's sake. And it's another way of saying uh, pursuing excellence and wisdom with grace and ease. So I wanted to read something. I think I need my glasses for that because there's, there's a, there's um, toward my study, I was studying accelerated learning at some, at one point, and there's some interesting things I don't know if you're aware of or not, but I'll just start off with that. And so, it has been said that, on average, we remember. And one of the things about mindfulness is it, it enhances memory. Um, it says we remember 20% of what we read, 30% of what we hear, 40% of what we see, 50% of what we say, 60% of what we do, and 90% of what we see, hear, say, and do. So the idea is learning with the whole brain. Uh, you know, you have the left brain and the right brain, and I think that's very fascinating because if we talk about the brain, thinking about how the brain works, we have, you know, we have the, and I was watching this program, and he talked about the handy brain. You know, it's, you have the, you know, the reptilian brain uh, that's in the back here, and that's the fight or flight. That's, they call it reptilian because it's, it's, it's the animal realm, right? That's where fight or flight is. And then there's the midbrain or the limbic brain or the emotional brain. And then there's the cerebral cortex. And so when it comes to learning, a lot of stuff that's happening in the middle brain, that's where our, the emotions as well as our memory and, and immune system and, and that sort of thing. And so what, 
what we realize is that it, you have to have what I call a receptive or resourceful state of mind to actually learn. Because if there's too much stress, the middle brain gets locked up. And so it's like having a computer and you don't have enough RAM to check your email. That's what the brain's like. So if there's stress, then the, the information we know doesn't get released. So there's, there's, a, there's a biological um, component to having the right state of mind because by having the right state of mind, it allows us to learn uh, better. And so this idea of, of um, what I call resourceful state of mind, I call it, you know, we got to be relaxed, confident, motivated, and interested. Because interest, you know, and, I, and this is from the neural, uh, neuroplasticity, when they talk about, there was a program called um, Brain Fitness or something like that, and they talked about how the brain learns. And one of the things is that by being interested, it, it, it activates the motivational circuits in the brain. And so there's a lot of um, technologies catching up to what we've known for a long time. So this idea of learning and learning for learning's sake is really, really important because there's joy in discovery. And you don't have to take my word for it. I'll read um, a guy by the name of David Bohm, and he's a, a physicist. I forget exactly what, but you know, he gets, he's this guy from England that, that passed away, but he said he was talking about. Um, I want to talk about this. He's talking about why scientists uh, pursue that field. And he talks about it. It's not, it's because uh, he says, the scientist, he says, he wishes or she wishes to find in reality in which he lives a certain oneness and totality or wholeness, constituting a kind of harmony that is felt to be beautiful. And so in this respect, the scientist is perhaps not basically different from the artist, the architect, the musical composer, etc., who all want to create this sort of thing in their work. Okay, to be sure, the scientist emphasizes the aspect of discovering oneness in totality and nature. For this reason, the fact that his work can also be creative is often overlooked. But in order to discover oneness in totality, the scientist has to create the new overall structures of ideas which are needed to express the harmony and beauty that can be found in nature. Likewise, he has to create sensitive instruments which aid perception and thus make possible both the testing of new ideas for their truth or falsity and the disclosure of new and unexpected kinds of facts. So that you folks know that that could be a possible reason to meditate because one, one of the aids for perception is really this practice of insight meditation this idea of cultivating mindfulness. And we talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, of feelings, which is pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, uh, mind states, you know, like you can be, the mind is concentrated, the mind is diluted, the mind that is, is that has anger in it, or whatever. And then the, what they call um, objects, or mind objects, which could be anything from what we call the hindrances, which hinder our ability to be present, like um, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, which is just a dullness of mind, and uh, worry and restlessness. You all have any experiences with any of these things? <laughs> and the last one, doubt. 
And so that's part of it. But then the other part of it has to do with the factors of enlightenment, which I won't go into all of them, but, but one, mindfulness is one of them, as well as investigation of dhammas. And that's, that's part of where interest so that we start looking at things. So on some level, when we get a teaching, what the Buddha is saying is don't believe what you read or what people say is to see for yourself. So in the investigation of Dhamma, is more about can we have the subjective experience of what is being offered. So if I say be still and know, and by being still and knowing, you experience a certain experience, then the idea is for you to actually do that or get yourself in a situation where you can do that. Does that make sense? And so this idea of learning and and this idea of the beauty or the the joy of discovery when we when we really figure out something or see how the universe works or see how the mind body works, which in here this is what the uh four foundations of mindfulness are talking about is seeing our subjective experience, but not only internally but also externally that means watching others. And I suspect that a lot of us are really good at watching somebody else and knowing when they got anger on the mind or frustration or whatever. And we could tell them, well, you know, don't they see that? What's wrong with them? I see it. But then if we turn the mirror towards ourselves, we're not so skillful at understanding or seeing things because there's an emotional uh, component. I would say there's an I, me, and mind that's involved with that. And, and a lot of us... You know, unlike children, because we can learn from children. Children, when you watch them learn how to walk, they fall down and they get back up and they're in, they don't lose their enthusiasm. And at some point, they learn how to walk. So they just trial and everything. And the world is full of it. You can see them. You can give a baby something, and they can play with that sucker for a long time. They get really engaged and, 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 and that sort of thing. So... If we took our way of our, our habitual way of being and put it in a baby, that baby would never learn how to walk. <laughs> because every time it fell down, it would turn around to see who saw it fall. <laughs> and, and so there's something we can learn about bringing this sense of wonder and excitement into learning. And that's what Socrates said. He said, wisdom begins in wonder. And so it's possible for us, and I have a, my friend Ruth here, who's a scientist, I mean, she, you know, we've had many discussions, but I work with scientists before this life when I worked as a financial analyst and I work with a lot of high tech um, engineers and whatever. And, and they, they would really get into, they would live, breathe, and I mean, they, they wanted to discover how things work and they wanted to, you know, even the Dalai Lama was like that. He used to take things apart, medical things, I mean, uh, uh, mechanical things, and to see how they work. There's something about, this joy of discovery that we can discover if we can get beyond the self and just get into learning for learning's sake and getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's what I call it, or comfortable with making mistakes. So what uh, Bohm says about that, and I just want to read with him, he says, one, uh, and he says, one thing that prevents us from giving primary emphasis to the perception of what is new and different is that we are afraid to make mistakes. From early childhood, one is taught to maintain the image of self or ego as essentially perfect. Each mistake seems to reveal that one is an inferior sort of being who will therefore in some way not be fully accepted by others. This is very unfortunate, for as it has been seen, all learning involves trying something and seeing what happens. If one will not try anything until he is assured that he will not make a mistake, and whatever he does, he will never be able to learn anything new at all. 
and this is more or less the state in which most people are. Such a fear of making a mistake is added to one's habit of mechanical perception in terms of preconceived ideas and learning only for specific utilitarian uh, purposes. And so basically what that's saying is one of the difficulties of looking inside of being still and knowing or learning how to use the whole brain is that it's hard to look at our stuff because there's, there's a perception. It's not just perceiving what's there. There's, there's this projection of preconceived notions of things. And when, we, when something happens, when we observe something, there's only a short period where we're just observing it as it is. And then there's a longer period of where there's self-reference, uh, associative thinking, like I remember the last time this happened, whatever, abstract thinking, oh man, what's this mean for the future or the past, and then other stuff, and, and it keeps embellishing it, so for us to really see the, the raw datum or the raw data is very unusual. That's why we have this practice of mindfulness, of understanding that it's through mindfulness that we're able to see where we're not fully present, we're not really seeing things we're kind of in the neighborhood, but we're not spot on. And so the joy comes when we're spot on and we're just in the moment and we're knowing it and we're experiencing it. And it's a feeling. It's a, it's a good feeling when we know. There's something about know the truth and it will set you free. Even if it's a difficult thing, the acceptance of it makes it possible for us to actually alter the occurrence of it and understand what are the conditions in which it arises. Does this make sense? What I'm, what I'm talking about, and so talking about mindfulness, and I've been studying mindfulness for 30 years, and I still think I, ha I still have a hard time trying to figure out or to explain it. I know what it feels like, what it looks like, but it's really hard to talk about it, or it's a challenge. And so one of the things, so in some of my research, I was looking at um, some ways of what mindfulness looks like. So one way is stability of awareness on the object or not forgetting the object. In most cases, it's the breath of the body and not forgetting the present moment. So it's not just observing the breath as it was yesterday or it might be today. It's about the immediacy of experience. So not forgetting or stability of awareness on the object applied. Sometimes we refer to that as directed thought. So you think about something. I'll give you an example of that. If I say to you, Think of your right palm. Where does your awareness go? Go think of your left palm. Where's your awareness go? So a lot of times, our mind is telling our awareness where to go, and we don't have any control over that. It's habitual. It's mechanical. And in some things, the, the more we try to control it, the worse it gets out of control. Can anybody identify with that experience? And so it's like a mental muscle. So one part of of mindfulness and steadiness of mind, and that's sometimes we refer to that as concentration or beyond likes and dislikes. It's like you may not like it or you may like it a lot. doesn't matter. The idea is just to stay on, on task or to hold that thing in mind. And William James talked about that. Volitional effort is the effort of attention, which means that you hold something in mind longer than it would ordinarily stay in mind because things are fleeting. Things are changing all the time, and so there's some things that come up that we can't get rid of, right? But then there's other ones we want to hold on to, them, but it's hard. So this is a 
this is part of mindfulness allows us to have that steadiness and focus in the here and now. Second part of it is what I call presence of mind, which is mirror mind. And really what that is is the mirror. It's just a mirror showing what's there. But, or if, if we use the still forest pool in the, in the mountains, uh, that if there's ripples, it doesn't really reflect the mountain. But when it's calm, you can see the mountain and there's no. So a lot of the time we got ripples. And it's interesting because I was in, in um, San Francisco the last five days. Just got back last night. And I was staying right on the bay side. And that water was churning all the whole time I was there. And yesterday morning when I was about to leave, it was calm. And I said, hmm, I wonder if it's calm because I'm leaving normally. <laughs> but anyway, but that just goes to show you that that's like our mind, that's like our experience, is that we can have rough waters for a long time, but if we can sustain our attention and, and stay with it, then eventually the mind's going to slow down. Because if you think about it, just think about a clock, not a digital clock, but a regular clock. Even a broken clock is, is right twice a day. <laughs> so, so at some level, just thinking about that, that sometimes we kind of fall into this stuff or we fall into the calm mind. And, and this practice is about, well, how does that happen? And to pay attention so that you can cultivate the ability to do that more. So I talked about stability of awareness on the object in the, in the moment, uh, mirror mind or presence of mind. And that is interesting because what it's really saying is when I talked about the embellishment or the projection of things onto the object. This is really saying um, allowing things to speak for themselves without interpretation, interfering, non-judging by thought, word, or deed, being face-to-face -face with whatever arises. So presence of mind and immediacy. So having that mirror mind, so it's just reflecting what is there. And so the mirror mind, stability of mind, and the third thing is the, mind, the, the mindfulness recalls or calls to mind certain things. So when we talk about remembering, what is it we are remembering? We are remembering what is skillful, what is unskillful. What is wholesome, what is unwholesome. And so it's, it's really understanding that it's an aspect of mindfulness that makes, makes, makes it possible to follow the Buddha's instruction, which is right effort, to let go of and abandon what is unskillful and to develop and cultivate what is unskillful. And so there's certain thoughts in mind that are unskillful. Thoughts of, of greed, of ill will, worry, restlessness, those hindrances I, I talked about. So there's a process here called right, mind, right mindfulness, but right effort has to do with knowing, being mindful when an also mind state is, is present, how to abandon it. How to let it go, not to push it away in order for it to go away, away but just to, to deal with it. So, for instance, we talk about ill will or, or, or let's just say ill will. There's a way of dealing with that to abandon that. And one way to abandon that is to, to do the opposite, which would be loving kindness or love, compassion, or one of the compassion practices. Um, second way would be to, or the first way really, would be to understand the consequences. When there's anger in the mind, what's going to happen? What we think, what we say, what we do is probably not going to be skillful. So if we make that connection, that's a really good start to understand that. And so there's more ways. I'll just give you a couple. So one way is the opposite. One way is to reflect on the consequences of that, of having that mind, that thought in mind. 
And the third way is just to divert attention to something else and something positive. And, I, and I'm reminded of this guy, um, Schwartz wrote a book, Brain and the Mind, and he works with OCD patients or obsessive compulsive disorder. And he talks about a four-step process he uses, which I won't go into, but it's basically um, um, labeling, okay, saying, okay, this is my you know, OCD, and attributing it to some chemical imbalance, and then, and then refocusing. And then by refocusing, you revalue what you're doing. So here's the thing. So you have OCD, go wash, wash your hands. You don't go wash your hands Without the thought, go wash your hands. There's a there's thinking that goes on. You wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. And what happens, because that thought is there, your body's going to do what, what your mind is telling it to do. And so he was training people to refocus on go to the garden. Anytime you go to the garden. And initially when you do that, you're going to go wash your hands. I mean, more because it's stronger. But at some point, because of the law of, um, attention and, and, and quantum physics, what happens is by keep saying, go to the garden, go to the garden, go to the garden, at some point that becomes more powerful and then you start going to the garden. So for me, whenever, when I was getting clean, whenever an you know, impulse came up, I would recite the serenity prayer or focus on something positive so that I could alter that occurring of, of the compulsion getting more more and more, and then actually going out and doing something. So does this make sense? And so it's this idea of understanding that knowing when something arises and what its consequences are, how to abandon it, and then the second part is how to prevent it from arising in the first place. And if you're mindful, if you're cultivating love, or as John Accord talks about, you know, he has those five uh, happiness um, research habits, and one of them is to think of three, pick three things a day to be grateful for, three new things a day to be grateful for. What does that take, 45 seconds? And by doing that, what happens is after 21 days, it becomes a habit. After 66 days, it becomes grooved in. So what will happen? You're training your mind to see what's right. And then that happens. Another thing he says to do is smile three times. Now, how much energy does that take? And he also talks about what he calls the doubler, which is if you have a good experience. How many people have a good experience and reflect on that? Yeah. How many people have a bad experience and really contemplate that? (laughs) So it's something there, isn't it? Think about that. And so what he says with the doubler is that if you have a positive experience, if you write about it, you are re-experiencing it. You're getting it double. Of course, we're doing the opposite. That's what we call PTSD. You're having the, the negative thought, the negative experience, and you keep contemplating it, contemplating it, and you think your mind is going to get calm that way? No, it's not. It's going to be, it's going to be more your tendency to, to be awfulizing or looking at the glass as half, half, um, half, half empty. Does that make any sense? And so that's the part of remembering what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, and, and so all of these factors help each other because the right effort is the effort is the on one level it's the continuous application of energy uh, balanced in a balanced way but also you can bring enthusiasm into it and so 
that's one part of it. But the other part of it is knowing when there's unwholesome mind state or unskillful thoughts or feelings or whatever, and then you, you change that. So you can change it by doing the opposite or reflecting on the consequences, part of wise reflection. The other part is you can divert attention. And then a fourth way, which is a little bit more challenging, but as we continue to do this, you actually take your mind and you, and that becomes the object of awareness. You actually get, you get to see what happens when anger is in the mind, what happens when doubt is in the mind, anxiety. And so you actually can see that. But in order to see that, there has to be a space between stimulus and response. And mindfulness, this practice of insight meditation, can help us to do that by, by doing these things, by being able to see it as just a reflection of what's in front of us, steadiness of mind and staying on the object, staying in the present, and then understanding that, you know, what we're doing is unwholesome. And then the fourth thing is what we call appropriate attention, or it might make more sense to talk about it as paying atten- attending to essentials. So there has to be a level of, of intelligence or clearly knowing. So every time there's mindfulness, mindfulness is there, but it's steadiness of mind, concentration, right effort is there with it. Um, the other thing is clearly knowing the wisdom is right there with it. So it's mindfulness, but it's also mindfulness being supported by right effort, uh, clearly knowing and, and concentration, the steadiness of mind. And so we, we, we can do these things. And this wise reflection is also helpful sometimes before we meditate or before we do things is reflect on what we're doing and why. We call that santi sampajana, which is clear comprehension. So it's important to understand in activity, okay, what's my purpose? What's the best way to do it? And it's interesting because I think we talk about it, but it's a challenge to do, and that is the third sati uh, um, sati is uh, keeping the, the, the domain of practice, which means keeping the object in mind throughout the day. That's one is more, it's a little more of a challenge to do. So if you're working with the breath or the body, it's like coming back to it during the day. Because the power of mindfulness, the secret of performance when it comes to mindfulness, is continuity of mindfulness. So if we're just sitting on a cushion, even if we sit four hours, there's another 12 hours where, you know, that four hours is, you know, three times that is, if we're not awake then, then when we go to sit, it's going to be a challenge. But if we're having continuity of practice, when we go to sit, it'll be more of a joy, it'll be more of a... Um, you see the continuity and it'll continue to build. Make sense? And so that's the thing about mindfulness. I don't want to talk much more. I just wanted to give you a little taste of that. I, don't, I didn't really want to talk a lot, but just talking about this idea of the mindfulness so that, and this is what Viktor Frankl said, he said the space between stimulus and response is where we have the power to choose and where we can transform. And so by cultivating mindfulness, by being able to be still and know, by being able to just see things, without reacting to them, without interfering with them, we're able to see how we get conditioned, see how things arise and pass away, see how we get attached to things. And it usually comes through one of the sense doors. Everything starts with that. It comes through the eye, the nose, the mouth, the body, or the thinking, the brain, the mind. And so that's where it starts. And so when we can see that and say, okay, so... We're sitting here, we're meditating, and a fire engine goes by. Now, you could 
If you have mindfulness, you'll be sitting here and you'll be noticing hearing is occurring, arising. You're hearing the sound, you let it fade away. But if you're not mindful, oh, there's a fire engine that's messing up my meditation. <laughs> you know, I wish the center was in the country so I wouldn't have to deal with that. <laughs> and so there's all of this stuff, then you make it noise. Now, the sound is, has nothing to do with us. It's what we do with it. If we make it noise or we just allow it to be and let it, and then here's the interesting thing, it'll stop. It'll arise and it'll pass away. But if we keep thinking about it, it's still there. Make sense? And so this idea of learning and understanding that this mind-body process, and going back to what I said a little while ago about the whole brain thing. So one of the things about being still and knowing a sitting is on, on the physiological level, what happens is when, when we give the mind one thing to focus on, like say you're right-handed, and if you're left-handed, it'll be your right brain. It's the linear. One plus one equals two. It's the words of the song. It's step by step. The right brain is more seeing the melody, seeing the whole picture, more intuition. It's like second attention. We know things without being able to explain why we know them. And so by being still and knowing, giving the mind one object, this side stops, hits its dominance, and then the, then the uh, other side is able to have a word in, get a word in edgewise. And so the silence and stillness is, is important, but I learned from studying Tai Chi for a lot of years. My Sifu used to say, there's stillness and movement and moving and movement and stillness. So you can be moving quick and not be in a hurry, as John Wooden, the Hall of Fame coach at UCLA said. So you can, be move, you can have a moving center. And so I like the analogy of the eye of the hurricane. So there's always some sour whirlwind, but in the middle there's a blue sky, there's this peace disease, and that's what we have inside of us. And if we use the analogy of the ocean, like I said, it's choppy up there, but if you drop down below the surface, it's, it's cool, calm, and quiet, collected. And so we have this inside of us, but how do we access it? For one way is to be still and know. Other way is just to understand how to, to relate to things in a way where we're in this, what I call being mindful is like just being relaxed, receptive, and quiet, and just settling back and allowing things to happen. And I'll read what Ajahn, says about, Ajahn Cha says about that. He says, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. And of course, uh, T.S. Eliot said, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And that happened to me when I walked from the detox and I saw my street for the first time. But this idea of being mindful, like I said, it's hard to talk about it, but these poetic ways of, of viewing it is really, really helpful. It, it helps us to get a flavor of what it means. And I have one more thing here to read. And uh, I won't get into the specifics, but it's basically, it talks about wonder. It says, you know, this guy, um, Fink, Eugene Fink, 
I said, when he spoke of wonder in the face of the world, what does this mean? It implies an approach that can shatter the taken for grantedness of everyday reality. Wonder is the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange and what is most familiar. It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us, a passive receptivity to let the things of the world present themselves in their own terms. Now, that's a good idea. But it's a challenge. Why is it a challenge? Because what it's asking us to do is be vulnerable and acknowledge the fact that each unknown moment that arises, we have no idea what it's going to bring. So it's unknown. And so to really be open to it, that takes something. And so when I talk about my book and and one other aspect, because friends of mine tease me when I talk sometimes. They said the five this, the eight this, the seven that. It get confusing, and I try to talk in a way so it's not so confusing, but we talk about the five spiritual powers of having power, and, and one of those factors is confidence or trust. And so you have to have a trust in not only ourselves, but in what we're doing. So confidence... Um, Faith in the practice and confidence in ourselves. And so this is a lot deeper than just, you know, in the proverbial glass half empty, half full. We know that if you see it as half empty, then you're probably going to be in a survival mode. If you see it as half full, you're going to be in the growth mode. And the interesting thing about cells, which we are multiplicity of cells, is that a cell cannot be in the growth mode and the survival mode at the same time. So either you're going to be in a survival mode, which means you're not in a growth mode. And of course, if you're a football um, fan, you know that the best defense is a good offense. So what does that mean? That means if you keep them on their heels and they're on defense, they can't score. And same with us. If we're on our heels and we're in survival mode, there's no way we can grow. And so there has to be this, this understanding of that. And so if our ultimate perception of of the universe is one of unfriendliness, then that has a consequence. And so Einstein said that the most important question you can ever ask is if the world is a friendly place. For if we decide that the universe is unfriendly, is an unfriendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources, which includes mind-body process, to achieve safety empowered by creating bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness and bigger weapons to destroy all that which is unfriendly. And I believe that we are getting to a place where technology is powerful enough that we may either completely isolate or destroy ourselves as well in this process. And if we talk about the recent thing in South, um, South Carolina, that's a lot of, that, that's where that's coming from. Thinking that you have to destroy a race or people because you're threatened by them. And that didn't start with that act. It started with the, the, with the, the word thoughts and speeches. If you see how our politicians talk to each other, you see how we relate to each other. It's this illusion of separateness that allows that to happen. So that's, that's an extreme, but every day we, we, leave these, we can leave these quiet moments of desperation on our own with our own minds when we're when we are uh, re relating to the universe as if it's unfriendly because the natural response is going to be, or natural reaction is going to be the fight or flight, which is that reptilian brain, which is all about, what does it do? 
uh, forage for food, uh, fight or flee, and reproduce. That's what it does. Nothing personal. That's what it does. And so if that's operating instead of the you know, cerebral cortex, we got a problem. And so we understand that. So the idea is to unify the brain because this, this is a time when we need that fight or flight response. For instance, if you're walking across Broadway Street and the car is coming fast, you do not have time to contemplate whether you should move or not. <laughs> you cannot do that. You have, to be, you, you have to let your body move you out the way without thinking about it. That's what we have to do. But we can, we can contemplate that and create space between stimulus and response so that we don't get emotionally hijacked by the amygdala, that there's a space between what happens and, and having a choice in which way, what's the skillful response to that. And sometimes we're going to make mistakes and do the, wrong, uh, do the unskillful thing, but this is where this practice of reflecting and saying, okay, given that, how do I train myself so the next time that happens, I don't react. I just have the space, and then I know when we say this, you know, the opposite of, of greed is, is renunciation or generosity. The opposite of, of hatred or ill will is goodwill, compassion, um, f relating to interbeing, understanding that we all connected because this illusion of separateness is, is a problem because it creates this, this this need to defend ourselves when in actuality, and I'm not saying being polyamorous, because the thing about developing this faith is when mindfulness helps us cultivate faith, but then it has to be balanced with wisdom. And of course, you see people that have so much wisdom that they become cynical. And so that's why mindfulness helps balance. When there's not enough wisdom, it brings more wisdom, and if there's not enough faith, it brings more faith and confidence in. And then the effort part of making the effort it's a steady, continuous application of energy with enthusiasm. So that needs steadiness of mind or concentration or poise. So if there's too much poise, then we get lethargic. You've got to bring more energy in. And if it's too much energy, then we've got to bring poison so that it's balanced. Does this make sense? And so, so I hope I talked about it in a way that, that makes sense around this whole process of learning. And from moment to moment, we can learn. And if we look at what happens to us, like when I look at my, my um, substance abuse, or any of the things that happened to me, there's a lesson, there's something for me to see. And, and ultimately what this practice is about is seeing how we suffer, how we create suffering, so that we have this path of knowing suffering, the cause of suffering, which is usually around grasping, clinging, ignorance, and then knowing there's a way out, and the, and the way out is the path, is, is the Eightfold Noble Path, which is right, right, right view, right intention, which is the wisdom piece, and then right speech, right action, right livelihood is what I call the ethical training. And then the, the one that everybody's familiar with is the mental training, or it's sometimes referred to as concentration. I prefer mental discipline or mental training, which is the right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And so those things, and, and, and you see a lot of people talk about mindfulness and they're talking about the practice of mindfulness, but when I talk about mindfulness meditation, I'm referring to the Satipatthana Sutta or the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which includes the wisdom training, the ethical training, and the mental training. And that's how I, I, I apply it. And so the things I talked about are things that, that help us with the practice of mindfulness. 
but the cultivation of mindfulness, of being able to understand things and to look for my experience and let it speak to us rather than having a habitual relationship to it where we keep saying the, seeing the same things, doing the same things, but somehow expecting different results. It's just not going to happen. So we've got to understand, what am I thinking? What am I seeing? How am I feeling? And, then, and starting to see, well, when I'm when the anger in the mind, or what I call having on the hate glasses, how, how do I experience things? If I have on the love glasses, then that's something else. If I have on the wisdom glasses, it's just understanding what glasses are we wearing, because if you wear glasses all the time, you're not even aware you have them. And so this understanding of states of mind, so this practice has a way, but the learning part of it is just learning for learning's sake and having the joy of discovery. Which, which I experienced, which uh, David Bohm talked about. And so I'll, I won't say much more. I just want to talk about this possibility because it's been my experience. This, that this practice doesn't have to be like when I came in, this lone warrior where I sit through things and I got to be solemn and I can't be, you know. Good luck with that one. Didn't work for me. And now it's like just... It's going to be great. It doesn't mean we don't challenge. It doesn't mean we look at everything as rosy. It means to be with things as they are. And given that, can we create space between stimulus and response so we can make the skillful choices? And when we don't make a skillful choice, can we go back and revisit it and then do it the next time around we can do it? Because this idea of mindfulness and wisdom with these other factors of steadiness of mind and right effort and having the faith, obviously, to actually do that, because I talked about the unfriendly universe, so let me finish by, and if it's neither friendly or unfriendly, then God is essentially playing dice with the universe, and it doesn't matter what we do. Well, that's a choice. But the other one, if we decide the universe is friendly, then we can use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to create tools and models for understanding that universe. Understanding, wisdom. Because the power and safety will come through understanding its workings and its motives. So the refuge or the way to freedom is understanding how this mind-body works and how, understanding how we create suffering. And how we can do the opposite, create peace, ease, uh, harmony. And so I'll end it there and then open it up for Q&A. I think we'll need a micro, uh, microphone. So when you're using this, think of it as an ice cream cone, like right here. That's the only way you'll hear anything from it. I like that. Hello. Hello. I have a question. Um, like when you're thinking, I just started this practice. Right. So, so I'm trying not to be too, like what you're saying, at least if I'm hearing it right, don't be so, don't beat myself up if I don't get it, you know, what I think I should be getting. Right. But anyway, like when you, when you were saying like, I think you were saying like, think of a wholesome stuff. Like, like I have this, like last night I was thinking about wholesome things that were something that was kind of funny for me and it was playing all over my mind again mm-hmm. and again. Um, because it was kind of funny to me. Right. But is that messing with my continue, like you said, the continuity of being mindful? Because I'm not in that, I'm not being mindful because I'm thinking about something that happened before and, like, 
I don't know when the wholesome and yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, know? on some level, what did it, what did you end up doing and feel? How did you feel and what did you do after that? It, it made me laugh. Like it was making me laugh. So that's good. Well, you, how's it feel? It felt good. Okay. Yes. See, interesting, because we have an idea that mindfulness means that we're do, we're being mindful, but. What, were you aware that you were reflecting on those thoughts? Yes. Yes. Then you were mindful, right? Okay. Well, did you have presence of mind? Was it steadiness of mind? What I just talked about? Was it a mirror mind? You were just with what was. But see, this is, this is what we call skillful means. Because if you focus on something positive, and you're focused on it, and you're contemplating it, um, that can be helpful. Because we call, talk about wise, wise reflection, and in the, in the athletic realm, there's this idea of remembering your past successes. You know, by reflecting on your past successes and reflecting on, well, that's how that felt. What did I do? This is why I'm doing this. Because on some level, we have to remind ourselves why we're doing this. And it's nice to have some wholesome mind states because that will cultivate it. And the more you focus on that, the more that mind state will will come into being. So whatever you have in mind becomes your reality. So if you're focusing on, on things that make you laugh, then that's skillful. Now you say, okay, I'm doing that, but I'm not paying attention. Well, if you're in the moment and you're laughing and you're reflecting on what's going on, even though it's a past experience, the only way you can think about it is it's in the present. So that's okay. Yeah, see, we got to stop thinking about so much because sometimes we think like, because there's a, there's an unconscious thing like, okay, this is too simple. I must be doing something wrong. You know, because we're complex. And something simple like be still and know you're sitting. Well, what's the consequences of taking that in? One consequence is that's too simple, and I don't believe it's going to work. The other thing could be if this is simple. I've been really stupid for a long time. And I don't, that's not my language, but that's the language we talk about, like, you know, this, what we call existential guilt. How come we didn't know this 10 years ago or 20 years ago or five minutes ago? And that's, you know, that's, that's a choice. That's making a judgment about something. And mindfulness is not judging, but even though we're trying to be mindful, we're going to be more unmindful than mindful. But if we can just start over, just like starting something, a lot of things that are electronic, when they don't work, you turn them off and turn them back on, they reboot. We can do that, too. Okay? Okay. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else? You got a hand over here. Can I put the mic up? Okay. Can you um, share with us more about your um, your experience and um, your work for with um, prisoners or ex prisoners? Yes. Uh, have, I I I guess uh, most of us here have never been to prison pris, prison. Um, so how do you how do you work with people who has gone through so much, um, who's made tons of mistakes? I made tons of mistakes, but it right. just so happens that I didn't get um, get into jail. I mean, I could have. So I just want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of my first talks here was prison as a state of mind, because I work with these inmates in a place called um, Bay State. Correctional institution, 
and these guys were a lot of them in my class had already been in prison for 30 years they were never getting getting out and they developed that place because of the Willie Horton situation where Willie Horton got on furlough and he killed somebody and so then they decided not to furlough and they put all of these lifers in the same place and they were some of my best students because I could go in there and talk about the Buddha Jesus Christ whatever and they used to thank me for going in there and so I would say a lot of them are more free than the people out here they don't have freedom but they have liberty they have control over their minds and they can become enlightened in there I mean there's a there's a there's the story of Angulimala, which means the mala in the fingers. This guy that was killing everybody, and the Buddha transformed him. So it's never too late. But we have this idea that there, there, because there are inmates in there. I work with different inmates, and sometimes they could be in there five, ten years and still not accept the fact that they're in prison. When you've been in there 20, 30 years, you know, and you know you're not getting out, then your quality of life is what you have this moment and so you either can do time or let the time do you and so this idea that inmates are, we suffer because they have the same thing we did it's just that they they did things and they're in prison so they're in a place where people are telling them when to go to the bathroom when to eat when all that stuff but they still have the same mind and body even though it's in there it's more about how they're relating to their experience so for us it's like we can be prisoners I was a prisoner of my addiction some of us are prisoners of, of, of uh, how we see things or whatever, and it's suffering. And so the idea is to look inside and see how each one of us is suffering. Like, how are you suffering? Or why are you asking that question? You know, can you, can you answer that? Why are you asking that question? Because I'm curious. Because um, I was a prisoner about a year ago in the hospital. For oh. about six weeks, okay. um, I um, I was very mindless. Yeah. And then um, I smashed my brain and ended up having two surgeries. And mm -hmm. luckily, I survived. And mm -hmm. and after that, um, I ran into some friends who were working, who was, uh, who is actually working with uh, prisoners mm -hmm. uh, as a volunteer for mm -hmm. a few years. And so mm -hmm. I started to follow him mm -hmm. as part of a therapy because yeah. yep. it, it, it's that sense of imprisonment. It's like what you said, it's not necessarily because I'm physically in jail. Um, there are so many things in, in my brain or in my body or right. how right. I perceive the world. Oh, they're out there to get me. Yes, that's right. That's right. So... Um, yeah, so that, that's helpful you saying that because it's a state of mind. See, because, like, and I'll give you an experience. I had, when I first started going in there working in prison, I realized that I wasn't myself in there because it was, I'm very sensitive. And before, there's a gatehouse where you come in and then you go through the, behind the, the thing, then you actually go into prison. Well, I walked into the gatehouse and it was very oppressive. The, 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 the suffering in that gatehouse was overwhelming. And so the first time I went into prison, it took me four days of meditating before I got back to normal. And people were living in there all, all the time. And so I had to figure out my own ritual so I could go in there and be myself in the middle of all of that. So I could be the eye of the hurricane. I had to learn how, how to do that. 
And uh, I remember one of the inmates said, you got a nerve in here coming in here being happy. <laughs> and it was his way of saying, because, you know, guy, guys don't like to be too vulnerable. It was his way of saying, I don't know what you're doing, but I want some of that. Because, you know, he, he noticed the difference between when I'd come in there and I was just doing things, but I didn't feel myself. And that's, to me, that's the challenge. Can we know who we are and can we be ourselves no matter where we are, whether we're in prison or Yale, jail, or locker room, boardroom, it doesn't matter. Can we be ourselves, but we got to know who ourselves are or how to be. And this practice gives you some ideas about how to purify the mind and heart because they talk about the foundations of mindfulness as being the path of purification of the mind and heart. Some people say the heart. I say the mind and the heart or the mind. I, I use both. And so, yeah, so... They were some of my best students because their life depended on what we were doing. And they were in prison. They were never getting out. And they, some of them had been in there for 30 years already. So, But they were more free then. And they could talk about stuff. And they would thank me for coming in there. You stay. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I, I, maybe I hope that if you can write, um, I'll write a book about um, your experience and your work, that would be great. Why, well, writing about my addiction, that was prison. You <laughs> may not see it that way. But, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'll write some more stuff. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Anybody else? I've got a hand over there. Can you pass the mic? To... Hi, thanks for coming here to speak. You're welcome. Um, <clears throat> so my question is, can you give any suggestions on how one can improve one's ability to be comfortable being uncomfortable, to hold steady and not give up and do something to make oneself feel comfortable? Mm -hmm. Yes, well, it's, it's, it's as simple as being still and knowing or just sitting still and, like, say, Whatever the mind state is, if you can, is what we practice, bear awareness or bear attention. And so if you're sitting and, you know, let's say, what's, what's feelings are you thinking about when you ask me this question? I'm thinking about smoking cigarettes. Okay. All right. So an addiction, right? So what are the thoughts? Or is it, is it the thoughts or is it discomfort in the body? It's more in the body. Okay, so what does that feel like? Does it feel like having too much caffeine? No. What does it feel like? Um, it, it feels like a longing. Okay. And so can you create space? Can you, can you, when I talked about mindfulness, you know, what it looks like, can you, can, you, can you just feel the bare sensations in the body without calling it longing? Can you just be with the bare sensations and just breathe with it and allow them to be there and just create space? And then when you can't, then you can use what we call skillful means and focus on something else that's positive and then be with that. And then when you get enough energy, then you can go back to just seeing it. But the thing is just creating it and allowing it to be there, it's creating space around it because it's not the sensation, it's the thoughts about it. Because the way this thing, the way our perceptual process works is there's a contact. So it's the body and there's a sensation. And then there's consciousness that has to be there with the sensation. 
And then from there, it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And I can guarantee you, if it's pleasant, you're going to approach it. If it's, if it's unpleasant, you're going to be in, um, you're going to have aversion or avoid it. And if it's neither, you're going to space out. And usually, spacing out has to do with there's nothing we really want and there's nothing we're trying to get away from. And so there's usually, you know, there's, there's, a, there's greed with approaching and, and ill will with, with avoiding and then delusion with spacing out because we don't know what we're doing or why. And we're just kind of chilling, getting nowhere fast, as Curly would say, three students. You see what I'm saying? So it's about understanding that there's the sensation, then there's the thoughts about it. So there's the, there's the contact of having a sensation, there's the feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, then there's the labeling, identifying it, and it could be right or it could not be right. It's okay, longing or cigarettes, whatever. And then there's the thinking about it, and that thinking gets into, this is not one thought, it gets, becomes a proliferation of thoughts, and you can actually have a whole short story about what all that means. Yeah, then you, you... And then it keeps, refeed, then it keeps feeding it because you, you think about the thoughts and then it increases the feeling. And you increase the feelings, you've got more thoughts about it. And then you're in this... You might as well be a hamster on that hamster thing because it's running around trying to chase your tail. And, and once s- I form a plan, then I'm really in trouble. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> well see, this is, this is what happens because William James says this in his, in his book um, when he talked about the volitional effort is the effort of intention, of attention. So if you hold something in mind long enough, then your body is going to behave. You're telling your body what to do. And so when you keep thinking about cigarettes and how much you long for it, whatever, well, you're going to be smoking a cigarette. Just like, like me, I, I had to get to the point that one drink is too much and not enough. So no, because once you do it, uh, we used to use the analogy of the cat. We used to use the, the cat story. Uh, uh, you know, craving is like a cat. You know, a stray cat in the neighborhood and you put food out and it comes around and you feed it, if you don't put food out, it won't come around. It's still in the neighborhood, but it won't come to your door. <laughs> and that's what addiction is like. Like, it's, it's, I don't see it, but it's there somewhere. And all I need to understand is if I don't feed it, I'll be okay. And it's the same thing in the book I talk about the two wolves. There's this, this Cherokee um, grandfather's talking to his grandson, and he's saying, you know, there's this off a war raging inside of me, there's two wolves. And uh, for simplicity, one is love, one is fear. And he says, this is this terrible battle going on. And his grandson ultimately says, well, which wolf will win? And he says, the one I feed. So this is what this practice is about, is not feeding the, 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 the fearful wolf. Now, it's not making it bad or anything. It's just saying it's skillful or unskillful. We both have those wolves in us, but which one we feed will determine who we become and, and how we behave. And so that's the theory. So how do you not feed that, that compulsion? How do you not feed it? By just feeling the sensations, just breathing with it, and not getting into the story about it. Because the story about it keeps it, gives it an identity and keeps it alive, and then we become identified with it. Like I would say, I'm a dope fiend. I'm always going to be a dope fiend, or I'm always going to be an alcoholic. There's consequences to thinking like that. So when I came around here, Larry Rosenberg, who was my teacher at the time, said, you know, you got to even drop the label of being in recovery. So he knew that that label, because that has a ramification. So I just say, I'm just nobody going nowhere. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But just, just 
this focus on, you know, the labels and when you have a label, what does that mean? And so the idea is just to be still and know and just, you know, um, is to be present and just notice what's there. But it's this idea of, like I said, re just letting that situation speak to you. Sitting back, creating space. Breathing now, is it uncomfortable? Yes. But if you, get, you can get uncomfortable, we can get comfortable with being uncomfortable by just saying, okay, this is the nature of the mind and body when these conditions is not personal. If George was going through the same thing, he'd be feeling the same thing that I'm feeling. But you creating space and allowing it to be without getting into the story about it, it will start to wane, and then it won't have the pull that it has. But it's, it's that simple. And then noticing, we called it in recovery, called halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you're going to be more vulnerable to picking up. So it's those strong emotions. And so, oh, this hunger, I'm going to eat. Angry, okay. I got to deal with that. You know, let go because resentments will get us. Let go, let go, whatever. Just saying, okay, I can't afford resentments. It's nothing personal. I just can't. And so you do that. So once you make the mind state, the how do I take the anger and transform it? Because sometimes the anger can be the energy we use to transform. So it's, that's what they call martial arts. You marshal your energy into uh, a purpose or an intention. And then the lonely thing is, you know, being in relationship. That's why going to meetings, being on a sangha, sitting with your most intimate feelings, but you're being supported by the group or the community. And that's one of the things that it talks about how we predict job success. It's three things. Optimism levels, um, social support, and having a community that supports us. That's how I was able to write the book. I had a lot of support from community and friends and family. And the third thing is seeing stressful situations as challenges, not as a curse or, or being a victim. So having that victim mentality and saying, okay, I can't control this then that's what you're going to get. But if you say, okay, let's see. I don't know if I can, if I can suspend disbelief and just be with what is. This field is a sensation. So if you have anger is anger, whether it's anger because somebody didn't speak to you or anger because you, did, made, you, you were unskillful or anger because you're not getting what you want or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's anger. So if you can just be, what does it feel like in the body? What is the mind like when there's anger present? So you can abandon it or you can just look at it because it's teaching us something about suffering when there's anger there's suffering see how we're suffering see how we're creating suffering and then by seeing that then whoa then you start to say oh i can change that sometimes we say yeah i can change it but i want to be here that's okay too as long as you pay attention and see how it works out because ultimately that's going to happen when we see and know that's what the buddha says not just seeing but seeing and knowing and some of the knowing is just uh, can be very superficial or it could be really deep. And so that's why mindfulness and, and clearly knowing and wisdom are always working together with the other things in the background. You know, having the faith, you know, to make the effort. The effort helps with the mindfulness. The mindfulness helps with getting concentrated. And the concentration helps with the rising, the mindfulness and the concentration and wisdom. But mindfulness just kind of... It's a mirror. It just reflects what's there. And when we see what's there, and each time we go over the terrain, it's like doing a zigzag puzzle. You go over it, and you don't get it the first time. Each time you go over it, you get a little bit more. So you're doing a jigsaw puzzle. You see a piece, and then you say you need a piece. But, oh, yeah, I saw that piece. Before I know what that is, you take that and you put it in. Then it becomes a, you get a full picture of it. 
then you start the next puzzle. So this is, you know, mindfulness stitches things together. You get a little bit, then you remember that, and then you go over it again, and you get it again, and you do it. So when I talked about we retain 20% of what we read, that, that's why I read books five, six, seven times. Each time I read it, I get something else. So when I first came in here, before I came in here, when I was in that victim mentality, that, that, uh, that uh, yeah, victim, substance abuser, I read something and say, okay, if I don't get it, too bad. I didn't allow myself to say, you know, I can read it until I understand it. And if it takes me long, longer than Susie or Joe, then they're not George. I have to do what it works for George. And don't worry about Susie or Joe. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's, there's a lot to work with with that. But just the bare attention, just seeing what, what it, and then looking at it with interest. What is this? See, that changes your relationship to it when you say, I really want to know what this is, and it's going to be great. You know, you can keep the, the enthusiasm up, and, and what's his name? Or what's the Churchill? cigarette craving is going to be great. Huh? <laughs> the cigarette craving is going to be great. <laughs> well, that's interesting you would say that. That's not what I said. <laughs> I said learning or looking at it for learning for learning's sake, and you're going to learn something about yourself. That's going to be a great experience. You get what I'm saying? But it's interesting because it's telling you your unconscious is still trying to sneak in there. I, I say my unconscious is slick. It always comes at it different ways, and I always got to look at, well, okay, what did it just say? What am I doing? Is that skillful or is it unskillful? If it's unskillful, it's not to be done. If it hurts us or someone else, uh, then it's not to be done. If it's skillful then for myself and for others, then that's to be done. But the, the, watch the language. The language is telling you how you're seeing things. Because if you don't know what your intention is, follow your attention. Because your attention follows your intention. And most of our intentions are not known. Because, you know, we're not, you know, we're just on automatic pilot. We have a bitter way of being. And this practice is about looking at everything. And some of those habits that are skillful, you want to continue to do those. But the ones that are unskillful, we want to alter them or, or transform them. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Great question. Thank you. Yes. Anybody else? Yeah. You got a hand over here? Okay. Thank you very much for your wonderful um, teachings. Um, I have been a lawyer, working mom lawyer for 23 years, and I, I have been practicing yoga and sort of studying mindfulness, but mm -hmm. I lost my job suddenly in September, and I decided to just embrace this 100%, so I got my M to the MBSR, and um, basically my big insight has been that it's really, for me at least, it's in the practice. It's not in reading about it or talking about it. It's practice that makes has been transforming my life, so I just went on my first week-long retreat, and I feel like during that retreat, I started actually understanding the continuity of mindfulness for the very first time. I'd never mm -hmm. gotten close to that. And so what I wanted to ask you as someone who's done this for so many years and understands it so deeply, what is your feeling and your practice of the, the importance of going on retreat as opposed to just you know, incorporating it into your life? And um, if you have any advice on that to someone who's new to this. Yeah, well, my own experience was uh, I had the same thing 
um, I worked as a financial analyst for 16 years, and when I when I got clean and woke up, and I realized, oh, I'm working for this this um, military industrial complex where we make gyroscopes or guidance guidance systems for everything, rockets, missiles, everything, and so so I got clean, went back to school, and still working in financial realm for high tech. And I come in to see Larry, my weekly. In those days, there were very few meditators, so I had a half-hour meeting every week. And it was just before I moved in here. And I came to uh, one of our meetings, and he says, oh, what's going on? You look happy today. I said, oh, I took a mental health day off from work. He said, you should make a habit of that. <laughs> and, and so what happened was it, it was... It, it was too painful to stay and too painful to leave, and I, and I left my job, and then I did a lot of sitting, did three-month courses. I lived here, so I was doing a lot of retreating. I was on a board at IMS, board here, and I did a lot of sitting. And then I stopped sitting, and then I started working when I came out and started doing this stuff. And, and in those days, there was much more duality between sitting and not. And so some people really questioned my practice because I wasn't doing all these long-term retreats like I, I used to. And when I got the inspiration like you did, I thought I had to go to Tibet to really do this deeply. And that's not, that's an idea. It's not what it is. What's really important is to be where you are and to practice. So yeah, there's a time for sitting long retreats, but then there's a time for being in daily practice, because I'll be honest with you, because some people get really concentrated, but concentration just puts the hindrances in abeyance they're still there they just are not operating right then but then when you get out of the concentration which I saw people on retreat and I know I'm judging and I'm taking inventory but I saw people (laughs) or let me speak for myself after I came out of that concentration I was a bigger fool than I was before with more energy so it's it ultimately is the mindfulness, whether you're on retreat or not, is the continuity of mindfulness in understanding how we suffer and how we don't suffer, whether we're on retreat. Because you can be on retreat and there's still a lot of suffering, even though you take away a lot of the sense pleasures and all the other stuff, but there's still a lot of stuff in there. And so to me, it's, you have to follow your heart. For some people, they have to sit a lot of retreats and for others it's more about whether you want to be you know being a monastic and be in that community then really let go of things and just stay there and just do that or that there's a way for a householder like myself to really still get deep uh by just well if you want to learn it teach it that's, that's what i do but there's this idea of continuing to be um be mindful and just study the, but you have to study. You have to do wise reflection because otherwise, it's what. That's why we have right intention, intentions of of, of goodwill. That's why I study a lot. I read, reread it over and over. I study mindfulness and I have an idea of it, but it gets deeper because I keep reflecting on it. It becomes a meditation. That what is mindfulness? What does it look like? How does it feel? How can I teach it in a way that people can get it? How can I use language that can point people in the right direction how can I continue to to be still and know even in activity and so these are questions but when we say well is this way or that way that's an idea and it could be on our experience but we don't experience everything so the what the trap is is to have an experience and say that's the way things are 
instead of saying that's the thing, the way things were under those conditions, because if one of those variables changes, the whole thing changes. So the idea is just like change. That's the thing, impermanence. So we know things are going to change. So if we know things are going to change, then it's probably a good idea to know how you want to be in the change. Or you know you, the suffering, you know, things, there's no satisfaction. So you think, okay, if I do a lot more sitting, it's going to be more satisfactory. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> it's going to be, you know, it's unsatisfactory. It doesn't, you know, it, at some point it's going to change. Or because suffering, one way of looking at suffering is when we're separated from what we love or what we like as suffering, when, we're, when we have something that is unpleasant in our being or in our presence and we can't get away from it, is suffering. So it's always changing. You get old, you know, you age, get sick, and you die. And so the, the problem comes when it happens, we act like it's not supposed to. You know, like, oh, well, that's, I'm beyond death and aging. Well, you know, it's like uh, Woody Allen said, he doesn't mind dying, he just doesn't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> so, so, that's, so that's how we are. I think we feel that way. You say, yeah, this aging, you say it, but we don't really get that, that things are impermanent, that things are constantly changing. But that's why it's unsatisfactory, because it changes. And then I don't use the word um, no self, because I think that's confusing for people. I prefer the illusion of separateness. So we all think that we're not connected, but we are. And on even at soul level or whatever, whatever you want to call it, that we are all part of this, you know, we're into being, as Tetnahan talks about. We're all suffering. He says, call me by my true name so we can say, okay, the perpetrator, we should shoot him or whatever. But we all have that capacity to do it, that perpetrated it. So maybe if we grew up, you know, in Thailand and became a pirate because of the way we were raised and because of the environment we were in, those that's what happens. So that could happen to any of us. And so the idea is wherever we are, can we practice this, the Buddhist way of do good, avoid evil, purify the mind and heart, so that we're actually looking at how we're suffering, how we're causing suffering, and how we can have some release from that. So whether you do a lot of sitting or not, that's not so important. What's important is the continuity of practice and the continuity of, of understanding this is suffering, this is a cause of suffering, this is the end of suffering, and this is the path to lead to the end. So to me, that's the most important thing is to be practicing because wherever you go, there you are. So if you can be still and know and just learn how it works for you, that's the most important thing. So if it means you want to go to Tibet or whatever, that, that's what you do. But is there one way? No. There's many ways. But the main thing is wherever you go, can you be where you are when you're there? Yeah. Anybody else? Oh yeah, you have a hand back there. Hi, thank you. You're gonna, we're gonna give you that so that. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question about um, your practice. Um, is it a reasonable expectation that if I keep practicing, I'm going to get better at staying grounded in bodily sensations and in the breath? I um, I ask because I just did a 10-day sit 
mm -hmm. of 10 hours a day of meditation. And about nine hours and 20 minutes out of the 10, I was mentally redecorating my living room, mm -hmm. making to-do lists, lost in some fantasy. And I really found it so hard. I've continued. I sit for an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. But in some ways, practice has sort of made permanent this natural tendency of spaciness. And Interesting. I found like when I get the most feeling of spaciousness or space, it, it is the result of being grounded in bodily sensations, being able to stay with the breath. And I just find it's really hard to, and I think actually the 10 day sit was, it, it, it's getting in the way of my doing that. I think I got I don't know, it, it, it was so much, and I just found myself constantly getting lost in narratives and mm -hmm. fantasies and so forth. So as I go along, should I, would you recommend like doing shorter sits more times, like during the day, or giving up if it's not going well after half an hour, just stopping and doing something else and coming back? It's interesting. I'll share my experience. My first 10-day retreat, I was sitting there saying, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> it was horrific. Yeah. And, and what I realized at the time or whatever is that when you become aware, like I'd be on a retreat and it would take like five days before my shoulders came down. And I didn't even know my shoulders were up. So what you were experiencing has always been there. You just didn't notice it. And so to think that if you're on retreat, you're going to be mindful for 10 hours uh, and you're not going to have this, this time where your mind is totally unmindful. It doesn't mean you, get, you give up. You just keep watching it. But you have this idea that you're not doing it right because you're, you're, you're planning. But, but that's part of it. It's just noticing that and being okay with that and realizing it's part of the process. It's not... See, we keep looking for permanence, even though we don't think we are. And so you think, okay, I'm on retreat, so I got to use this time. I took vacation time. I got to really, you know, and this relationship I have, I got to get resolved with that when I sit. And they're saying we have all of these expectations, and sometimes we don't even know we have them. But the reality is that even mindfulness is a condition. It's, it's, it's subject to change. So you're going to be mindful, unmindful. But can you be Mindful of being unmindful, which you are, but then you judged it instead of realizing it's all good. See, it took me years to get to that point. That the, it's a simple practice. Just pay attention to the mind. If you're mindful, if you're not, just being aware of that and being okay with that, and then understanding that that's part of the process. Because it's almost like the mind says, "Okay, you've been mindful for nine hours and twenty minutes. Now is my time. Now is my time. You had most of the day. Now is my time." You know what I'm saying? Because the ego is it's like, okay, so who am I if, if, if I don't get back in there and, and start acting like I'm controlling things? And, and you can see it, but then there's a judgment about it, but, but you're getting to it a different level. And then you're saying, well, because all the things you're saying to me, if you look below what you're asking me, you're saying, how can I get away from this suffering? And the fact is, that's the first noble truth. You've got to see suffering. 
and that's a hard one. That's a hard pill to swallow because, like I said, you got to have faith and you got to understand that. Yeah, I struggled, and I got to the point where I was doing anapanasati or mindfulness of breathing in and out. I get a headache. Then I had I dropped the practice, and then I got concentrated. So each person is different, but it's usually whatever you're attached to, and if you're trying, because usually most people. It's either trying too hard or not trying hard enough or trying with a lot of tension. If you're a type A personality, you're just doing that, right? And, and realizing that it's telling you something about yourself. And like I, I like to say all the time, how's that stuff working out for you? If it ain't working, then don't do it. Or just learn from it. Why do I do this? Because it's a conditioned response, a reaction. And so part of it is even though you get into it, it is... It's like a pill in the onion. You're going to get to another level, and each layer is going to have a different way of, of, of facing out or not being present or trying to control things. And so once you understand that, it's not a problem. But you viewing it that way makes it a problem. Instead of realizing, no, it's not about what you do. you got to experiment. You know, how do you stay present? You know, are you cultivating faith? See, because when I wrote this book, I felt like I didn't have any faith. Somebody said, How's it, what would it feel like to write the book? Well, it's like being in uh, Grand Central uh, in Times Square at, at uh, rush hour with no clothes. <laughs> That's what it felt like. So when I was saying, I have no, 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 no faith, and then I said, well, well, mindfulness, you're supposed to cultivate faith, and then you balance it with, because I had a lot of wisdom, or a lot of, not wisdom, but let's just say a lot of knowledge, and I'm cynical. So, you know, there's many books on mindfulness. Why should I write one? Why would people want to listen, you know, hear, listen to what I have to say? All of these, you know, that negative self-talk, I have a name for it. I call it the negative committee. It's always <laughs> telling me what I can't do and all that. And just noticing is the voice. It's like, I think one of the guys calls it, and one of his books calls it the roommate. <laughs> we all have that roommate that's always there. And even though we're not aware of it, it's there. And it has an opinion about everything. And no shame, None. It'll say whatever about anybody, and you say, oh, did I really think that? Well, I'm not even going to let myself know I thought that, <laughs> instead of realizing it's not you. When there's an unwholesome mind state, all bets are off. So we understand that. You know, I was in San Francisco, and I was teasing the song is out there. I said, you know, mudita, sympathetic joy. I said, it's easy for you all to do that because Golden State won the championship. Now, if Cleveland won, and I came to you and said, you should be appreciating, be have joy for them, I don't think you all would be feeling that. <laughs> I think you'd probably be calling me some names and probably, might even walk out on me. Say, I don't want to listen to that guy. You know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's easy when it, you like it, but when it's hard or when you have this seductive fantasy going on, to let that go, that's, that's a challenge. <laughs> And then when something is unwholesome in there and we want to get rid of it, the more we try to get rid of it, the more it stays. It's like having a friend, or not a friend, but somebody come by your house and you don't like them, or you don't tell them, but they come in and they say, how you doing? And, and they say, can I come in? And they come in because they know you don't want them there. But what would happen if they came by and said, oh, Susie, I'm so happy to see you. Come on in. They'll say, no, I got to go someplace. See you later. Because you totally changed the dynamic. And this is what we have to do sometimes, bring skillful means in, and, and can we see it as if it's a fresh and new, like the baby trying to walk, the child. Can we look at it and say, well, what is this? Bring that interest, that quality of, of um, investigation into it. Because um, 
Winston Churchill, his definition of success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. So that's what we can do. Make sense? I'm there. Okay. All right. So I don't Thank know. You. I think we're out of time. So in, I appreciate uh, everyone being here. This is awesome. And uh, uh, have, uh, keep, uh, keep on keeping on is what I'm saying. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Let me shut off the mic. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.